it's so creative inspiring radio retro Hi, I'm Richard Niles, welcoming you to part two of our sentimental journey with Doris Day. Gonna take a sentimental journey. Probably the biggest record that my dad ever had was Sentimental Journey. And he actually wrote the song with his chief arranger in about 15 minutes. Listening to the song was the only time that men would cry during the war and heard Sentimental Journey. And it wasn't just hearing the song, it was hearing Doris Day whispering the song in their ears, going straight to their hearts. Doris Day's career was to achieve the kind of superstardom in singing and acting only reserved for Crosby and Sinatra. But while still in her teens, she had a massive hit with Les Brown's Band of Renown. Les Brown Jr. tells the amazing tale of the million-selling smash of 1945, Sentimental Journey, with some help from his brother and band member Stumpy Brown, and some readings from Doris Day, her own story. His uh, chief arranger was a man named Ben Homer, and Ben was a great musician and a wonderful guy, and had one bad habit, he loved to bet on horses, and forever was in debt. So, in those days, you used to be able to go to a music publisher and say, I need, you know, an advance $50 or something, and, and uh, I'll bring a song in on Monday morning and have it on your desk. So that's exactly what happened. Well, he had taken the $50. Instead of taking it home to the wife and family, he went to the track and he lost that. But he still had to have that song on the publisher's desk on Monday morning. And he Sunday evening, and he's sitting at the Brill Building, and he's trying to write a song, and he can't write anything. They called my dad, and he said, Les, I'm stuck. i got to have a song on Buddy's desk tomorrow morning, and I can't write. I'm just so torn up. My wife's going to go. Les, Dad said, don't worry. I'm not doing anything. I'll come down. So he walks down to the Brill Building, goes up, and said, let me see what you have. And Ben played, dee, da, dee, da, dee, da, dee. Then Dad said, what are you doing with that interval? How is the singer going to sing that? That's a little. Why don't we? Why don't we make it simple? A little. Dee da dee da dee da. He says, "Yeah, that works." And then Dad wrote the the bridge. You know, ba ba da 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 dee da da da. Okay. Fifteen minutes later, they had the song. They didn't need lyric. They just needed to put the music on his desk. So he turned it in the next day. Buddy Morris was the uh, was the publisher. And Buddy had just read a book that was a 19th century travelogue by the name of Sentimental Journey. So he gave it to a lyricist, uh, Bud Green was his name, and Bud wrote songs like uh, Once in a While, Blackfoot Bougie, and all these things. And he said, Bud, I want you to write a lyric for this song, and I want the title to be Sentimental Journey. Doris wrote about the first time she sang Sentimental Journey in her autobiography. We were playing the Pennsylvania Hotel in Newark, New Jersey, when at a late night rehearsal, Les gave me the sheet music for a new song that he had helped compose, Sentimental Journey. The band went through it and I scanned the lyrics as they played. I felt a distinct rise in my scalp. I always feel a rise in my scalp or on the backs of my wrists when something is special, whether it be song or man. I stepped to the microphone and on the second run through, I sang the lyrics. I loved the song, I loved singing it, and we all thought it was going to be a big hit. When we were at the Pennsylvania Hotel in New York, 
1944, uh, we had put some little journey in, as they say, in the books in our library. And we started playing on our remotes around uh, 200 July or something like that. And I never knew this, but I heard Doris doing an interview where she said, letters came pouring in. What is the name of that tune? It's great because there was no recording going on in those days because Petrillo had to stop recording. He had a strike on against the record companies. So anyway, Les was told this or knew it, and we quit playing it because he didn't want anybody to hear it over the radio and go out if the record band was ever lifted and record it before he could. So we were in Boston, and it was in November, nice and cold, and we got the word that the strike had ended. And it was word that it looked like it was going to end. Well, we got on the train right after the job in Boston and went right down to New York City, went into a recording studio called Lito Krantz Hall, and we recorded Seminal Journey. That was the first thing we recorded. Les introduced Sentimental Journey the following night. I started to sing the lyrics, and by the end of the first eight bars, the couples had stopped dancing and were just standing there, arms around, listening to me. It was an overwhelming success. They just stood there, wildly applauding until we played it again and again. There were requests for it all night long. I sang it on a network remote, and mail came pouring into the hotel from all over the country. A short time later, we recorded it, and it became my first hit record. Everywhere we went, that's what people wanted to hear. When they did record the tune, it was late in 1944, and they went out on the road. It was released in uh, February, I believe it was February of 1945, and of course, a few months after that, the war ended. And Sentimental Journey with Doris's, you know, Girl Next Door voice and all that became the theme song for all those kids coming home from World War II. In a sense, Sentimental Journey became the serviceman's theme song. For the rest of the war, I received a flood of mail from GIs all over the world telling me over what army juke or radio they had heard me sing the song and what it meant to them. Some of them wrote me love letters. It was very touching. I got sick and tired of having to sing the song, but I never tired of reading the mail from the servicemen. I had other hit records with Les, like My Dreams Are Getting Better All the Time, but none rivaled the success of Sentimental Journey. Gonna take a sentimental journey Author of Doris Day's biography, Michael Friedland. This was the song that really epitomized the era. It was wartime. Young men in khaki, olive green or blue, of various shades of blue, were being shipped to they didn't know where. And on the top of their minds was all they wanted was another journey, a journey home. So they listened to Doris Day sing this song and they related to the song, they related to her. And you can imagine them on the dance floor, but you also imagine the boys in troop ships listening to this and praying that their, that their journey would be sentimental one day and going back home. Writer of the off-Broadway show Secret Love, The Real Doris Day, Karen Oberlin. When I hear Doris Day singing Sentimental Journey, I hear the, the honesty in her voice and the, the sensuality of her voice. She had a teacher... Grace Rains, when she was growing up, her first voice teacher, who was 
extraordinarily important in her entire career. And she would talk about Grace Rain very often throughout her career. And this woman was not a great singer herself, but a wonderful teacher who taught her to act through songs and taught her to speak to a real person and that one-on-one experience of know who you're singing to and sing right in their ear when you're singing on the radio, in performance, in any environment. And she did that so successfully. And I can hear that in Sentimental Journey so clearly that I think it, that's why it's it, it, it works so well and part of why it became such a big hit. If you do have to have fashions in songs, there have to be exceptions to the rule. And that is an exception to the rule. It sounds as fresh today as when she first sang it. Her recording success contrasted with her private life as her second short marriage to another musician, George Wheedler, ended, and her third was beginning, this time to her agent, Marty Melcher. Although they were married for 16 years, the marriage was not a happy one, with Melcher pushing her to work to the point of exhaustion and squandering her money by gambling. Doris should have been worth $20 million in 1968 when Melcher died, but she faced half a million in debts. Michael Friedland. I think Doris had um, a weird sense of the sort of men that she was that she was craving for. Um, I think if you really want a definition of how different Doris in real life was from her screen image, as this lovely girl who was always getting the story a bit wrong, but came back to it in the end and was very nice and very virginal and very loving and very, very normal. The definition would be her real life. It was so totally different from that. I didn't think about having a career when I was a little girl. I wanted to get married and have children, and I wanted my husband to be the man of the family. Very old-fashioned that way, and it didn't work. I became, you know, the breadwinner. In 1961, Doris recorded the album Duet with conductor, composer, and pianist Andre Previn. Singer Karen Oberlin and many critics feel it was one of her best. I believe because she was unhappy in her career. Marty Melcher, her third husband, was encouraging her to do material and to do films that were not projects that she wanted to do. And she had been singing songs that did not make her terribly happy. And this was an opportunity to sing songs that she adored with a composer she adored, uh, with a pianist who was so glorious, Andre Previn. And she really dug in, and the results are, are incredible. There's a song written by Andre Previn and Dory Previn, and it's called Yes. And I sing it on my album as well. The joy in it and love in this song, uh, you can it just emanates from, from the record or CD gloriously, and it comes across uh, so beautifully. And you sense the, uh, the idea of duet between the two of them when they play off of each other, the piano and voice. She was such a musician, even though she couldn't read music, she found a way to sight read and... Uh, she was a musician herself because her voice was such a, you know, a wonderful instrument. I think every musician wanted to be able to play with her. Audiences don't often consider the hard work that goes into the final performance they hear on a record or see on the screen. 
A great performance requires many hours of rehearsal, and Doris, with her exhausting schedule, used a technique often used by busy musicians, mental practice. I would drag myself home at night too tired to move another step, but I kept practicing in my head. It was a trick I learned early on that was of great help to me. I could rehearse a dance routine in my head, watching myself perform, and that did me almost as much good as getting up on my feet and doing it. I rehearsed songs that way too. Not just the lyrics, but the actual rendition of the song, the phrasing, breathing, all of it, without singing a note. As a result, when Hollywood called, as Hollywood used to do in those days, Doris was ready, even though she'd never acted before. Songwriters Julie Stein and Sammy Kahn had been knocked out by her singing at a party and recommended her to director Michael Curtiz. But she stayed loyal to Les Brown until she got a call from actor Jack Carson. Jack Carson is the one who called me in my room at the hotel because I had my ticket to go home. So all set to go. I called my mother, and Terry was just a little guy. And uh, I said, I'll be there, and uh, then we're going to go back to New York. And so you be ready for that. Okay. So the phone rang, and it said, uh, hello there. I said, hello. So this is Jack Carson. And I thought it was somebody pulling my eye, and I said, oh, yeah. Sure it is. Who is this? And he said, no, it's really, it's really Jack. And then I got the voice, you see. And I said, oh. And he said, I just called the tournament with them. You're going to be my leading lady. And I said, what? He said, I know that you're going to have the part. And I said, oh, it can't be. It can't be. And he said, why not? And I said, because I have to go back to New York. <laughs> and I said, and I, besides, I have my tickets. And I'm picking up my mother, and my sister said, hold her. Wait a minute. I don't think so. A screen test with Warner Brothers led to her first film, Romance on the High Seas, in 1948, and she was one of the last stars developed under the old Hollywood studio system. Bosley Crowther's New York Times review savaged her, saying, this day's singing voice, while adequate, is nothing to herald. It was obviously adequate enough to get her an Oscar nomination for the song she sang from the movie It's Magic and her first million-selling solo hit. In Britain, her voice and presence was adequate enough for them to rename the movie It's Magic. Now, if you're a singer, it's useful to have a good friend who's also a brilliant arranger like Frank Comstock. We came here, and Doris, about that time, had been bugged by everybody agents and all kinds of people come in and try to get her to be a movie star, whatever she was going to end up, you know. And so she said, I'm going to try get something, some work somewhere. And so she said, would I be her ranger conductor? And, and I said, sure, because this is where I was born. I was so glad to get home anyway. So we did two or three radio shows. She did the hip parade with Frank Sinatra at that time. Axel was conducting and did all Frank's tunes, and I did all of her tunes, which were the more the lighter, peppy tunes, you know. And so we did that, and then one day she got a chance to have a, a screen test. She took one of my arrangements to, to Warner's to sing on their, her screen test, and they, they liked it, so I, I got a job, too. And I, I guess I did their, most of her first 10, 12 pictures, you know, parts of them, and, and then if I let, I did the whole picture, like on, uh, what's the name of that? Climity Jane, Climity. I think that's the reason why Doris Day never needed acting lessons, because 
She went to her screen test with all that inside of her already. Grace Rain had taught her to be specific, to act in her songs and act as a performer on stage when she was singing with a big band. And she had been doing that for years already. So when she was in front of the camera in her screen test, she just did what she'd always done, but just on the spoken word rather than the song. At the start of the picture, I began taking lessons from the Warner's acting coach, Sophie Rosenstein. But Curtis soon put a stop to that. Doris, I tell you about acting, he said. Some people, the lessons are very good for them. But I tell you about you. You have a very strong individual personality. No matter what you do on screen, no matter what kind part you play, it will always be you. What I mean is, the Doris Day will always shine through the part. This will make you a big, important star. You listen to me. She sounded like the voice went right from speaking into singing and, and back. I mean, she always seemed so natural. I think Doris Day was a very sensual singer and actress. And people who are limited in knowledge of Doris Day to pillow talk may forget how sensual she was and is, I'm sure. I think Doris Day always exuded a sense of ease in performance as a singer and an actress. And I think some people misunderstood that and didn't see what great work she was producing because of that. There was love in everything she did, always, at every song, whether it was a, a, a heart-wrenching ballad or a, a comedic song or a non-singing dramatic role or Calamity Jane or Pillow Talk. There was always a sense of love and joy in her work. When people look back at Doris Day, they don't think of her as the great singer she was. They think of her as a movie star from all those wonderful Glass Bottom Boat and Pillow Talk and all those great films, all right? But if you look at her body of work as a recording artist, it's awesome. It's just incredible. You know, and people tend to forget that. You don't see a lot of uh, Doris Day re-releases coming out that people play and you get to hear it. But she was a magnificent singer. And I'm a magnificent Richard Nile signing off saying thanks to our contributors, Les Brown Jr., Karen O'Brien, Stumpy Brown, Frank Comstock, Doris herself, and a kangaroo pouch of thanks to my producer, Fiona Kroll. Next week, I'll be giving you a fair crack of the whip with the story of Calamity Jane, considered by many to be Doris at her best. So get on that Deadwood stage while I'm moseying out of here. Radio Richard, Richard. It's so creative, it's Radio Oh